You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Well, good morning. Uh, if we've not met before, uh, my name is Matt Lalloyne. I serve as the other of the two pastors uh, here on staff at Liberty Church. Uh, grateful to have you with us this morning. I know people come for a variety of reasons. You might be sitting here for a variety of reasons, whatever that might be. Uh, we're really grateful to be spending some of your, your Sunday with us. And if you have Bibles, uh, you can make your way to the Gospel of Mark. Uh, the end of chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 9 uh, is where we're going to spend some time today. Uh, if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles uh, that John just referenced a minute ago, uh, page 844 uh, is where you'll find uh, today's text. And today we have reached, crazy enough, uh, the turning point of the Gospel of Mark. Um, So the first half of this Gospel, and some of you have been here and some of you have not been able to be here, uh, the first half of this book is really focused primarily on the identity of Jesus. Uh, Who is this? Who is this person who's now walking around and doing kinds of powerful actions and proclaiming the kingdom of God? The second half of Mark is focused more on the mission of Jesus. What has he actually come into the world to do? And the end of chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 9 is really the hinge from this first half to the the second half. Jesus here will clarify his identity by plainly revealing what it is that he has come into the world to do. And both the suffering and the glory that that will entail. And as Jesus brings clarity to his own identity and his own mission, he, he likewise and simultaneously brings clarity to ours to the suffering and to the glory which await any who would follow after him, any who would come after Jesus. So I invite you to listen now with open ears to this book that we love. This is the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 8, beginning in verse 27, and then I'll read through chapter 9, verse 13. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. 
and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. God, our Savior, we ask that you would now give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Jesus, so that the eyes of our hearts, as Paul writes in one of his epistles, the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened. Help us even now this morning to know the hope to which you have called us, to know the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints, and the immeasurable greatness of your power which is at work within us. And we pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Jesus is the one Uh, unique in all of the universe, unique in all history. And we read here in this text that Peter confesses Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one of God. But we quickly learn that this confession is incomplete. It's incomplete. And in the clarity that follows from Jesus in this text, we come to find that Jesus, the one, is three things. The suffering Messiah, the incarnate glory of God, and the model for his followers. The suffering Messiah, the incarnate glory of God, and the model for his followers. So first, Jesus is the suffering Messiah. In verse 27, where we picked up the story, uh, Jesus is walking with his disciples in this region, this district of Caesarea Philippi. And this district was historically a center of worship for a variety of pagan deities, All the way back to Baal, who you read about a lot in the Old Testament. The prophets do battle with the prophets of Baal. Uh, Then the Greek god Pan, who was the god of the wild. He was a goat man god. Then emperor worship. Uh, This was a place where people uh, honored Caesar, the Roman emperor, as lord. Uh, So this is a place of religious confusion. Which means it's also a great location for Jesus to do some clarifying His disciples now have been with him for a long time. They've been firsthand witnesses to his words and to his actions. They've been in the midst of of huge crowds of very different types and groups of people who have very different opinions about who Jesus is. And so he asks them, who do people say that I am? And his disciples recount to him three of the most popular opinions, the most popular responses of the time. One is John the Baptist. Uh, And back in Mark chapter 6, we found out this is actually King Herod's belief. Uh, He had ordered John the Baptist's execution. He now fears that John the Baptist is reincarnated in this person of Jesus. Other people think this is Elijah. And as we we actually read there at the end of chapter 9, first century Jewish people 
anticipated the return of Elijah. Uh, Elijah, at the end of his ministry, he was a prophet in the Old Testament, at the end of his ministry, he was taken up to heaven without dying. And a few centuries after that, God, via a different prophet named Malachi, said, Behold, I will send you Elijah before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So this is really an understandable misconception about Jesus' identity. But as as Jesus clarifies in chapter 9, verse 13, Elijah has come. And we actually read in Matthew's gospel, Jesus explicitly says, John the Baptist is the fulfillment of that prophecy from Malachi. He's the fulfillment, not a reincarnated version of Elijah, but he fulfills the function of Elijah. He comes into the world to prepare the way for Jesus to proclaim the coming of God. Still others believe that Jesus is simply uh, one of the prophets. And that's also understandable. If a, if a Jewish person in the first century heard Ju- Jesus speak with this kind of authority or observed Jesus act in power as he does, the most natural category that they would have would be a prophet. It's kind of like the old adage, you know, if it, if it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it probably is a duck. And Jesus, in his words and his actions, he looks a lot like a prophet. So many people think, okay, he's, one, he's like one of the prophets of old. The common thread is that all three of these, these misconceptions, these views, perceive Jesus' identity and mission as preparatory. So John the Baptist came to prepare the way for Jesus. Elijah was going to come to prepare the way for the day of the Lord. Prophets would, were, came proclaiming the, the work that God was going to do in the world. But Jesus' identity and mission isn't preparatory at all. He is actually what all the preparation has been building to. He's accomplishing in his life and he's about to accomplish in his death and resurrection what others have been preparing for. So another way to think about it is this. Jesus is not another forerunner. He is the fulfillment. He's not another forerunner. He's the fulfillment. And so Jesus next moves from a a cultural survey, who do people say that I am, to the infinitely more important question. Okay, that's what other people think. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say I am? And as the leader of the 12, as the spokesman of the 12, Peter answers, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. It's an incredible statement. Peter is expressing here his belief, his conviction, that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one that God was going to send to deliver and to save his people. And in the face of so much confusion about Jesus and his identity and his mission, this is a faith-filled and genuine confession from Peter. Jesus is going to be the one to deliver the people of God. That's Peter's confessing the truth of that in this moment. But it immediately becomes evident that this confession is also woefully incomplete. Why is that? Because Peter's concept, like almost every Jewish person in the first century, was that the Messiah would come in political power. He would come to liberate the Jewish people from the oppression of the Roman Empire. A Messiah, in the minds of all the Jewish people of the first century, a Messiah was triumphant. And what Jesus begins to clarify there in verse 31 is that his fulfillment as the Messiah is going to first happen through humiliation. There will be triumph. He even says there in verse 38, he will come in glory with the holy angels. But first comes suffering, comes rejection, comes death. In a completely new way, and we miss this because we weren't alive in the first century. At least I don't think any of you were. I definitely was not. 
in a completely new way, Jesus is taking this popular notion of a victorious, triumphant Messiah and combining it with another line of prophecy from the Old Testament, namely prophecy about a suffering servant. And in Isaiah chapter 53, for example, we read, Surely he, the suffering servant, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. So who is Jesus? He's the fulfillment of both of these lines of prophecy. He's the Messiah, but he's a suffering Messiah. And in the ears of a first century Jewish person, that's an oxymoron, right? It's like jumbo shrimp, where these two words we put together make no sense, right? Suffering Messiah, that doesn't compute for the average, for for most first century Jewish people. And that's why Peter feels the need to rebuke Jesus for saying this. But what we're reading here, this is an essential aspect of Jesus' identity and mission. Though he has come with power, and we've read about this in Mark already, to preach and to heal and to cast out demons and ultimately to triumph, he came into the world to suffer and to die. Verse 31, he must suffer many things. He must be rejected and be killed. There is no peace without his chastisement. There is no healing without his wounds. Real deliverance from God will be accomplished through the suffering of the Messiah. Now for you, for for us in this room, this may or may not be new information. But let's learn from Peter here, from the bad example, really, of Peter here. Though his confusion is understandable, and probably, if handled a different way, would have been welcomed by Jesus, what Peter does with his confusion is really brazen and it's really foolish. He begins to rebuke Jesus. Think about that. He's seen now Jesus rebuke nature and demons and even death itself. Here, Peter feels obliged to rebuke Jesus himself, which is really dangerous territory for someone to be on, to rebuke Jesus, take him aside and say, hey, Jesus, you're actually wrong about this. The Messiah, actually, let me, let me explain to you how it works. And that's why Jesus responds as sharply as he does. These are sharp, stinging words in Scripture. Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. What, what we can, should take away from this, among, among other things, is this. Jesus gets to define Jesus. Jesus gets to define the identity and mission of Jesus, not Peter, not the disciples, not the expectations of the people. Jesus gets to. And this central question of the Gospel of Mark, this central question here applies not only to the original hearers and readers of his Gospel, it applies to you and to me. Who do you say I am? We must answer that question for ourselves and we must answer that question with the clarity that Jesus provides. Because though different from the first century, our culture has its own expectations and its own misconceptions and its own attempts to define who Jesus is. And if you listen closely, you'll hear this a lot. You'll hear this actually all the time right now in the election cycle that we're in. Every politician wants to claim Jesus for whatever their cause is. And they hone in on one aspect of his identity and mission and claim that as if if Jesus is on their team. Beyond that, some of the common misconceptions. Jesus is a great teacher. Jesus is a great example of sacrificial love. Jesus is a therapeutic comforter for those who are hurting and wounded. 
all of these things are true. Partially. Partially. By themselves, though, each is woefully incomplete. And so we must let Jesus speak. We must let Jesus define Jesus. When we hook into one part of his identity and mission, but we refuse to embrace all of it, we actually in that moment are committing the same error as Peter here in this text. We are, in effect, rebuking Jesus and voicing the lies of Satan rather than embracing the truth of God. As J.I. Packer once famously put it, a half-truth masquerading as the whole truth becomes complete untruth. So who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? You could read every word of the Gospel of Mark. You could answer every question in your Bible study guide as we go through those together. You could listen to every sermon that we will do in the Gospel of Mark this spring. If you do not answer that question for yourself, I will have wasted your time. I will have wasted your time. If you're confused about that, that's okay. Welcome. Welcome. There are a lot of opinions, there are a lot of misconceptions that exist in our culture. Confusion about who Jesus is and what he came to do, completely understandable. What I would implore you to is do not remain entrenched in that confusion. Bring whatever perspectives or opinions you have. Don't remain entrenched in them. Let Jesus speak. Let Jesus define Jesus. Second, Jesus is also, we read in this text, the incarnate glory of God. The incarnate glory of God. The opening verses of chapter 9 really give us the other half of the story. So Jesus' suffering and death is not all that there is, And Peter and James and John here are invited to glimpse for a brief moment the fullness of the glory of Jesus. We read there in verse 2, six days later, Jesus takes them up on a high mountain and he's transfigured before them. What exactly that entailed, we don't know. The word for transfiguration is where we get the English word metamorphosis. So some kind of transformation is, is happening there. And they see Jesus in all of his glory. His clothes are radiantly white, shining forth the glory of God. If you've been reading through uh, the Bible in a year with us in that plan, we've been reading in Exodus recently, and you'll recall when Moses would meet with God on the mountain, also with a cloud overshadowing, the experience for Moses of being in the presence of God was so intense that Moses' face would shine for days afterward. He had to wear a veil when he came down the mountain because the the reflection of the light off of his face from the glory of God was so strong. But Moses was merely reflecting God's glory. Moses was like the moon, which shines in the night sky, but only because it's reflecting the light of the sun. It has no light in and of itself. Here, Jesus is not reflecting anything. The glory of God is emanating from him. He is that glory. As you heard Abby read Hebrews chapter 1 before, he is the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. And speaking of Moses then, he shows up on this mountaintop, as does uh, Elijah. And their presence there is a picture, again, of Jesus as the fulfillment of all of the saving work that God has been doing in history. Moses and Elijah are symbols of the law and the prophets. Both of them were thought of in connection to the the coming salvation for the people of God. God had promised another prophet like Moses, a greater Moses, and Jesus is the greater Moses. 
And God had promised that Elijah would come before the day of the Lord, and John the Baptist is the human fulfillment of that, but also here on the mountain, here's Elijah. And Peter, James, and John, verse 6, are terrified. Terrified, which is completely understandable. They don't know what to say. In Mark chapter 5, a couple weeks ago when we were there, we considered how, how we who are familiar with the Bible, we who are familiar with Jesus and his life and ministry, we're prone to shrink down and to tame Jesus in our own perception, to forget that he's actually untamable power. And if you and I were to witness what these three men are witnessing in this moment, I mean, I don't know about you, but I know that I would, no doubt in my mind, I would say something far dumber, far more foolish than what Peter says here. Because actually, actually what Peter says makes way more sense than it might seem. Think about this. He says, let us make three tents. Maybe he's just wanting to prolong the experience of seeing Jesus like this. That could be part of it. But more than that, in the Old Testament, how do people experience the presence of God? They experience the presence of God through the temple and before that, through the tabernacle, through the tent of meeting. That's how God could simultaneously dwell with his people without consuming them in the fullness of his glory. And so in this terrified state, akin to when the prophet Isaiah saw the throne of God and cried out, woe is me, I'm a sinful man and I've seen God, I'm ruined. Peter is saying here, we need a tabernacle. Like we need a, what is going on here? We need a tent. If I'm going to experience God's presence, I need something to shield me from the raw power of the glory and the holiness of, of this. Otherwise, I'm done. Echoing then this pronouncement over Jesus at his baptism, the Father again speaks over Jesus. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And then in a moment, Moses and Elijah and the cloud and the voice of God are all gone and only Jesus remains. And the incredible reality that's communicated through that action in this moment is that Jesus, the glory of God, the fullness of God, dwells among them. Dwells among them. No longer do they, do they need the protection, no longer do they need the mediation of a tabernacle. Jesus himself is that tabernacle. He is the fullness of the presence of God with the people. And the apostle John, who's silent here but present for all of this, will actually use that very word years later when he writes his own gospel account. John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He's referring to Jesus, the eternal word of God, taking on flesh. And the literal translation for the word he says when he says he dwelt among us is that Jesus tabernacled among us. That the fullness of God took on flesh and entered into the world. And John continues in, in his gospel, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Yeah, he's seen it. John saw it in a way that very few human beings ever have or ever will until the return of Jesus. So whenever you read those famous words from the, from the opening of John's gospel, connect them to what John saw here on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus is the incarnated, the enfleshed, Glory of God, the fullness of God in human form. I mentioned earlier, this is the hinge. This is the hinge of Mark's gospel. And I say that because in order to really understand and to know and to believe in the real Jesus, we must see his suffering and his glory together. 
we must see his humiliation and his exaltation together. And Jesus connects those two things in a succinct way here in this text. He'll be humiliated, Mark 8, 31. He'll be exalted, Mark 8, 38. He's the radiance of the very glory of God as he's transfigured in Mark 9, 2, and 3. But then in Mark 9, 12 through 13, just as John the Baptist, the fulfillment of Elijah, was treated with contempt, so too will Jesus be treated with contempt. And unless we see both, unless we embrace both Jesus' suffering and Jesus' glory, we will miss who he really is. We will miss who who he really is. And what's more, we will also miss the model that he is in this moment laying down for our own lives. So third and finally, Jesus is not only the suffering Messiah and the incarnate glory of God, he is the model for his followers. And we actually learn that Jesus is the example, the model for his followers throughout uh, the New Testament. But explicitly, in chapter 8, verses 34 and 35, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, if anyone would be my follower, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And for the original hearers of these words, the weight of of that, the cost of this, would be immediately evident. To them, to take up your cross is no euphemism. Uh, it's It's no idiom for an inconvenience. Like we get stuck in traffic and we might say, well, this is just my cross to bear. But if you lived in the first century, if you were actually taking down Peter's account, which the Gospel of Mark is, is the Apostle Peter's account, and Mark wrote it down either just before or just after Peter was martyred in Rome at the hands of Nero and was crucified upside down. And he did it in an era where Nero was also crucifying hundreds, if not thousands, of other Christians all the time. Peter and other Christians in this era, when the original readers would hear this, lost their lives on crosses for the sake of Jesus and the gospel. And so to summarize it succinctly, to follow Jesus means we must die. It means we must die. And for some, perhaps that is in the literal physical sense of death. But even if not in that sense, to die to self to die to our own agendas, to die to our own plans for our own lives. A scholar named William Lane puts it this way. He says, those who wish to follow Jesus must be prepared to shift the center of gravity in their lives from a concern for self to reckless abandon to the will of God. To die in this spiritual sense is to shift the center of gravity off of yourself. And it's death Because anything less drastic than killing the old flesh, the self-centeredness, is not sufficient. And if we're honest, we don't want to. We don't want that to die. We like focusing on ourselves. We like our own desires. We like our own ambitions and our own agendas. We want to make Jesus fit into that as conveniently and cheaply as we possibly can and call it good and move on. But church, would you see this morning how critical it is and how connected these things are, how critical it is for us to grasp the real identity and the real mission of Jesus. James Edwards, a scholar, says it this way. He says, a wrong view of messiahship leads to a wrong view of discipleship. 
A wrong view of Messiahship leads to a wrong view of discipleship. In other words, if we only think of Jesus as the triumphant one, if we only think about his victory, then we will assume that our lives should be all triumph, should be all victory. We'll balk at this call from Jesus to take up our cross, to lose our lives, to die to self. But it's to the degree that we rightly understand Jesus' identity and mission that we will rightly understand our own. And just as Jesus' life and mission is both suffering and glory, so too are our lives as his disciples characterized by suffering and by glory. I want you to see, though, in this text this morning, that for Jesus, the baseline, the norm, was far more suffering than it was glory was far more suffering than it was glory. The glory came in glimpses. It came in glimpses. The glory certainly came at his resurrection and his ascension back to the Father. But for the majority of his life and ministry, rejection and suffering were the norm. There's a reason why that song we sang a little while ago that Jesus is called the man of sorrows. That was the norm for his life. And by no means are are we Jesus. So please don't hear me saying that. He accomplishes our salvation. We are merely witnesses to it and ambassadors of that good news. Jesus absorbs the wrath of God so that we don't have to. Jesus suffers the abandonment, the forsaking of God the Father so that you and I never have to experience that. He is the one. His suffering is unique. And praise God for that because that is our only hope in this world. But Jesus' life must also shape the paradigm and the expectations for our own. We want the glory. We want the exaltation that comes from being connected to Jesus who was the one who was risen from the dead, the one who was coming again in power. And certainly, in our lives, there is some of that glory. There are tastes of it. There are these sweet moments, and I hope that you've experienced these, I trust that many of you have, where the glory of God breaks through where you will experience in your own life or in the lives of people you know and love a radical transformation, like something that you just never could envision yourself doing to serve others or a sin pattern that just had, a, had you enslaved for years is no, is no longer has power over you. Where God intervenes in a miraculous way by bringing healing to someone or by meeting a need that no human could have ever met. Or maybe where in, in gathered worship or in your own personal rhythms of worship, this thought of being loved by God by the creator of the universe, just so overwhelms you with awe and with gratitude and with joy that you just can't help but but just basking in that moment and never wanting it to end. Where you become, like I did a couple weeks ago, the weird guy in Starbucks who's crying for no apparent reason, just consumed in a moment of like, wow, the thought of God is my father who loves me. You get these moments, these glimpses of glory that break through. There is glory to the Christian life, all right. But what we don't want and what we will find incredibly surprising and offensive is that the baseline, the norm, is suffering. That there are days where you will get no glimpses of that glory at all. There will be long stretches of your life where the glimpses of that glory is seemingly non-existent. In this life, Faithful discipleship in the way of Jesus will far more often be characterized by trial and hardship and suffering than it will by glory. And here's the thing, and I would implore you to get this into your soul, 
Christians, get this into your soul. That is not God's curse on you. That is not God's abandonment of you. It's actually your invitation into fellowship with him into deeper communion with Jesus, into a deeper knowing him at the heart level. It's why Paul writes in Philippians chapter three that I may know him and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death so that somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. It's why he writes in Romans eight that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. It's why he writes in 2 Timothy two that if we endure we will also reign with him. And it's why in Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas together are encouraging Christians over and over again to press on in faith because, quote, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. We get this so backward. In our culture, or maybe even not of our culture, at least I do, in my own life, in my own expectations, I think life should be lived on the mountain on the Mount of Transfiguration with all the fullness of the glory of Jesus now, that the valleys of suffering and hardship, that those are the tangents, those are the exceptions, those are the the short breaks from where really most of life should be lived, which is back on the mountain. But it's actually the other way around. It's the other way around. We live in the valley. We live in the wilderness. That's the baseline. The mountaintops are actually the breaks. They are these brief, sweet respites from what most of life entails for anyone who will take Jesus seriously and follow after him. And there are so many implications that flow from this. I just want to share one with you that I've been learning a lot in my own life lately. This paradigm is making for me, present day, a huge difference in how I fight against recurring sin patterns in my own life. What do I mean by that? Well, some of my sin patterns I've come to discover are rooted in an idol of comfort and ease and leisure. In other words, thinking that my life should generally be free of hardship and concern and trouble, that hardship should be these temporary breaks from a baseline of comfort. And because of that, when trials keep coming, when, when one hardship follows on the heels of, of the, the first, I'm prone in those moments to look for the eject button, to escape, or to try to create my own kinds of escape, to try to create my own kinds of comfort. And ultimately, if you really trace it down to the root, that's why I'm impatient. Uh, that's why I check out relationally, and I'm prone to do that. That's why I indulge lustful thoughts. That's why I'm inclined to drink too frequently sometimes. In those moments, I'm thinking something must not be working with God's plan, so let me come up with a better one. With a different definition of salvation accomplished by a different gospel of escaping the hardship. But this is no gospel at all. This is no gospel at all. Actually, it's what Jesus says, that in seeking to save our lives, we lose them. We lose them. If instead we come to realize that suffering is the baseline, that this is actually the way of Jesus, Now we begin, I begin to look for joy in the midst of that. Not when it ends, not when there's a break from the suffering, but as it's continually unfolding. If suffering is not God's curse on you, if if suffering is not God's abandonment, but actually an invitation into deeper communion with him, it means that God is continually drawing us into the very life of Jesus. 
And why would we ever need to escape from that? Why would we ever want to escape from that? Praise God for the glimpses of the glory. Praise God for them. They are what sustain you and me in the suffering. The tastes of glory, the tastes of the mountain are what will nourish and strengthen life in the valley. They will remind us that exaltation will follow humiliation, that glory will follow suffering. And in his kindness, God will offer to us actually a lot of them, if we look for them, precious glimpses of his glory for our own endurance and for our own hope. But in perceiving Jesus for who he really is, in perceiving his mission, reset your expectations for this life. And when suffering follows suffering, when another trial comes on the heels of the last, God is not abandoning you, friends. God is not abandoning you. He is communing with you. Don't seek escape from what is ultimately your salvation. And today, may you see from the Gospel of Mark both the suffering and the glory of Jesus. And over all your misconceptions and confusion, let him speak. Let him define his identity and mission and then let him define yours. Jesus is the one. Through his own suffering and glory, he has accomplished, praise God, our salvation. And so in fellowship with him, through many tribulations, may we enter the kingdom of God. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. As we read in the Gospel of John earlier, Jesus, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we're grateful to you this morning for welcoming us into all of the privileges of fellowship and communion with you. Help us to embrace all that that entails, the grace and mercy, the responsibilities, the joys, and the suffering. Sustain our lives, nourish our hope, strengthen our resolve, strengthen our resiliency by giving us glimpses of your glory. But we ask most of all, Father, that you would help us to embrace Jesus, the one who has accomplished our salvation, who has, through his own suffering and glory, accomplished our salvation. And thank you now for the weekly glimpse of your glory that this table is, that we might be nourished, feasting on the finished work, what your suffering has accomplished, what your glory enfleshed has accomplished on our behalf. So we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.